going out, let me, let me say I'm excited to introduce. Uh, we're going to Acts chapter 4, so that's going to be the sermon. If you have a Bible, you can go to Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're going to start in the first verse of Acts chapter 4. There should be a Bible right in the row, right in front of you. And you could take that if you need it. Consider that a gift to you. If you are a visitor, we're in the midst of a series in the book of Acts that we're walking through. And we believe that, we believe that the scriptures are given, they're God-breathed, they're for our instruction and righteousness and for correction, rebuke, and training. And we come to uh, the scriptures uh, asking God to speak to us. And so we teach through books of the Bible. Uh, we are in a few chapters into Acts. And if you've been paying attention and been around a while, uh, you know that we've been using a study guide uh, and that study guide ended last week, and so I'm excited to say this is the brand spanking new one, and uh, you can get one of these for free uh, when you walk out today. So when you go out today, this is gonna, week 7 through 14 of our Acts series. This should take you all the way up to right before the Advent series and Christmas, so you shouldn't need another, a new book until after Christmas. Uh, but we really have intended to, we want to, to get better at, at helping you learn uh, we, I want to I pour myself out so that the local church would be, uh, would be served. And this is one of the steps toward that. We publish it in-house, and so it's got all sorts of love in, the, in these pages of uh, people in the office at the church trying to staple and get them all together. And uh, these are here for you. So we're going to give them out after the service. When you walk out, you'll be, they'll chuck one at you lovingly. And with all humility, they'll throw one of these books at you. Acts chapter 4. Let me begin reading in the first, first verse. I'm going to go all the way up through 31. I invite you to read with me. You don't have to read aloud. That probably sounded that way. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may be spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, 
Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. God, we desire to come to your word rightly. It's an odd thing to encounter a book and to arrange our lives underneath it. But it is for good reason. And may we be like the early church, who when they encountered Scripture, writings of David, They said, this has been written by the Holy Spirit. God, would you send your Spirit, pour out your Spirit to help us to see things in your Word. Words written by your Spirit. God breathed. We pray that you'd transform us. We pray that you'd remove distraction, hardness of heart. Help us to be those kind of people who have ears to hear. God, we're grateful for this time. We want to be more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Boldness. Boldness is the word of the day. If you're going to write down what's the banner over these 31 verses, boldness. That's, that's the Sesame Street word of the day, right? That's, uh, any, anyone else? Am I the only one? Sesame Street, you get word of the day. Boldness. That's the, that's the thing, right? We're going to find it all throughout the text. It's what, the, it's what Peter and John are operating in when they start the chapter. It's what astonishes the, the leaders when they come in contact with them. And boldness is, of course, what the early church prays for at the end of this passage. Boldness. So to get at boldness today, I want to do a few things, and I'm, I'm hoping this is going to help us walk through the text. First, I just want to talk about what happened. In other words, it's a narrative of boldness. There's a story of boldness here wrapped up in Acts chapter 4. We've dropped right into the middle of something. Something's going on. You just came in 30 minutes into the movie, sat down, right? And we've got to take a pause and say, what's happening? What's going on? There's a story of boldness. And there's just going to be two two key things that we encounter and think about as we come out of the story. We're going to say to ourselves, "What what does boldness look like when opposed? In other words, boldness and opposition. When someone opposes you, what does boldness look like? Specifically, what does boldness and proclamation of the gospel look like? And then the last thing is I want to commend boldness to you, so I want to give you reasons for boldness. 
So boldness and opposition is going to be the first thing we think about out of the story. And then the second part that we want to look at is reasons for boldness. Boldness is going to be commended all the way through Acts. I want to show you that a little bit later today in the text. It's going to be commended, but if I commend something to you, I ought to advertise it a bit, right? I need to convince you about why it's worthwhile. Why be bold? Why pray for it? And so I want to give you some reasons, it seems like, from the text, why boldness is commended to us. So that's where we're going. We're geared up. We drop into the text and we're in the middle of a story. Like I said, we're, we're in the middle of a, a, a miraculous healing that just took place. Remember last week, Luke made it a point to point out the fact that this guy was taken to the, to the gate that was called Beautiful, Beautiful Gate of the Temple. We find out in this text that he's at least he's 40 years old. So for probably three plus decades, this guy has been brought and he's been sitting next to the temple gate. He's lame. He's begging. And right before all of the people, he's healed miraculously. And then, not one to let a good miracle go by, right? Peter says, aha, I think I'll talk about Jesus, right? He, he preaches. And it's right in the midst of this. Can you see the scene? Do you see the scene? There's this religious place, the temple. They have these official-sounding people who were there at the beginning. The day of Pentecost is, has already been past and there's been these murmurings, right? There's this murmurings of this crowd of people and what's happening. It's starting to build. And then this explosion, this miracle. And right in the midst of this temple, this religious experience with all these leaders, we find rushing around. It says that all those who were around ran over to Solomon's portico, to this porch area, and they began to listen to Peter. And can you imagine if you were one of these people in the beginning of Acts chapter 4? You're one of the leaders. Some of their names are awesome. I love this. They're, they were the priests. And then get a load of this guy, the captain of the temple. <laughs> what, a, what a great title, right? Does anyone have, like we could like share titles in our jobs. Titles are fun. Sometimes if you get like a promotion, it's like you get to remove the to the in the regional manager, right? You get, to, you get to mess with your title. Like if I was this guy, if I was this guy, I would have totally had just the sickest business cards ever with huge letters that said captain of the temple. Underneath it, right? Captain of the temple, that's religious sounding, that's official. His robe must have been totally sweet, right? He was, and then the Sadducees, or one of these sects, not S-E-X, S-E-C-T-S, right, of Jewish thought of the day. They were one of the ruling order, one of the official teachers, and these Sadducees are sort of seeing what's happening. They've dedicated their lives devoutly to making sure that worship takes place in an orderly fashion. These guys are not, these guys are not out to, to ruin people's lives. They're doing this because they love God. They think, I know what truth is, and I want people to see it. And there in the midst of their, their normal day comes these, I'm sure to them, what seemed like rabble-rousers, right? This miracle takes place. There's people running around everywhere. And it says that these leaders, these wearing a robe, nice, respectable, responsible leaders... Become, and I love the phrase at the beginning of verse 2, greatly annoyed. <laughs> greatly annoyed, right? Like the, the Holy Spirit's moving Luke along. That's what Scripture says about the Bible is that it's God breathed. The Holy Spirit moved men along. The Holy Spirit's moving Luke along. He writes, and they were annoyed. No, 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 no. Greatly annoyed. Like he needed to qualify it. This is the kind of greatly annoyed that only like a, a tired, sleep-deprived parent of small children can experience in the middle of the night, 
Greatly annoyed every time I pour the milk, half of it's on the floor. Greatly annoyed I can't walk through my house without dragging a child on my leg, right? That kind of just sort of like I've had enough. So the question that confronts us in this narrative is what made these leaders get to the point of greatly annoyed? Not standard fare, kind of frustrated, that's a bummer, annoyed, but greatly annoyed. The only other place in Acts that this phrasing, greatly annoyed, is used is when the demon-possessed girl follows Paul around for days yelling at him. Days. Demon-possessed. Yelling. That's the level of annoyance these respectable leaders have hit. So the question becomes, what is it that moves them to grab Peter and John and gather them up and put them in custody and, and throw them in jail overnight? And I want to I just pause for a moment in this part of the story to help you think through a couple of things. One is that we need to avoid a kind of instant self-righteousness when we read stories like this. Religious people, especially people who get it, people who say, like, I'm in Jesus and I know that I don't earn my righteousness. It's only because of his life and his death and his resurrection that I'm free and forgiven. Especially when we get that. It can be tempting to read stories like this and think, like, oh, these pagan idiots, they're so dumb. Like, they oppose Jesus. What, they didn't even know. They're so, they're so silly. Like, they probably just were, like, they're probably chewing on snakes before this. They're so evil, Right? Maybe no one else goes that dark. That's just me, probably. But um, I want you to think about it. I've painted a picture of these guys for a reason. They are the respectable, responsible, God-fearing, Word of God, law-abiding men. And can you imagine if you have been charged with and given authority over the temple, what would you have felt like if these guys come in and they're unauthorized? They didn't get an MDiv. They don't have the proper licenses. They're looking around saying, like, I don't, like, tell me your rabbi. He's not on the list, right? They're not on the list. And these guys come into the midst of it, and it seems like this miracle is being done, and everyone's running around, and I'm sure they're starting to get a little bit annoyed. And at first, they're probably just a little bit annoyed because everyone's running, and it's supposed to be a respectable place. It's a house of worship, right? And maybe they're just annoyed to the point where they're running and they're saying, and then they're like, ah, not, not on the marble, not on the marble. Like you're, you're bringing in, in dirt. You know, and that's just a little bit annoying. And then they mosey on over and they say, what's the commotion? And here's the thing that got these respectable religious leaders all worked up, greatly annoyed. The reason they were greatly annoyed is these people were teaching. They began instructing the people and specifically instructing them about the resurrection from the dead. And at this particular point, this is when one of the cheesiest church jokes of all time comes in handy. The Sadducees were a particular group of people that believed certain things about Jewish tradition and thought, one of which kept them tied to a very small portion of the Old Testament, basically all that Moses had written, and that was it. And so they had this list of things they did not believe in. Some of them included things like the afterlife. There was no resurrection. They believed that that did not happen, right? And so here's the cheesiest joke of all time. I maybe have already dropped this at Midtown one time, but it's worth it again. The Sadducees believed there was no resurrection from the dead, which is why they were so sad, you see. Wow, right? Wow, how far? I mean, that, all aboard the pun train on that one. That is just like, that's insanely cheesy pun, right? So choo-choo on that deal. And it helps us, though. It helps us. Why does it help us? 
It helps us because they moved from rabble-rousing, what's going on, are they just trying to stir things up, to now they're teaching heresy. And that's the impetus behind these guys. I want you to think about that for a few reasons. One, it helps us to understand the opposition that the early church comes in contact with. We read it through our lens and we say to ourselves, like, well, we understand Jesus. We know he came and died for sins. And these, these terrible human beings, and I think in some sense, to look at it from their eyes, these guys come in and they're stirring things up and now they're teaching what they consider to be heresy. And more than that, I want us to think about it from their perspective to understand what an amazing miraculous thing it is for anyone to hear the gospel and believe. It is not a minor thing to be confronted with the truth of the gospel and to have your entire world turned upside down. This kind of entrenched thinking, the kind of religious commitment that makes you take Peter and John and throw them in jail for their teaching, That is the kind of thinking that it takes the power of the gospel to come in and turn around. It's the reason the New Testament does not describe Christianity as a mere sort of tweaking of morals. Christianity is not an addition of Jesus into the vast scape of spiritual options of life. It's the reason the New Testament calls Christianity a new birth. In order for men like this, in this position, to come to grips to what God was doing in the Messiah is a miraculous thing. And it should make us pause and be in wonder. Which is why verse 4 is so amazing. Many of those who had heard the word believed. The number of the men came to about 5,000. So the picture we have of the church at this moment is a pretty large deal. This is explosive church growth. They could have wrote a book and sold them and had conferences and done all. How to grow a church. The post-Pentecost days, right? 5,000 men, what are they trying to say? It's a common way of counting. It probably means that a majority of them, a majority of them had women with them, wives. So 10,000 maybe, at least a couple of kids, 2.1 children on a white picket fence, right? So probably maybe 20,000 people. This is an amazingly powerful, explosive growth. And yet at the same time, this should be instructive for us, at the same time that things are going well and God is saving and the church is growing, opposition comes. Those two are not mutually exclusive. We should not immediately say to ourselves, if something goes wrong or someone opposes us, this is like, hey everybody, let's press the panic button, eject, everything's wrong. God brings growth right in the midst of opposition. So you know what happens. They get thrown in jail. I had some really good friends um, that were doing uh, missionary work in Turkey at one point. And they were in a park they had all kind of spread out and not spending time together, but they were doing spiritual surveys and engaging people. They were arrested. They were arrested and taken to the police station. And the police called and got a hold of the guy who was the leader of the team. And in a not very, in a not very good moment, not a very thinking moment, he brought down the passports and all of their information. And he brought the passports for these two people who had been arrested and picked up. He brought them in the same bag as all other 15 people. His, uh, passports. And so he brought them in there and he took them out and then the cops said, like, well, what's this? Who are all these people? And what happened is very, very similar. They got picked up late afternoon, evening, and they said, oh, we have to wait till tomorrow to hang out with you. And so these friends spent a night in Turkish jail waiting to figure out what to happen with them. They were ended up being deported the next day from the country. But this, this sort of idea of throw them in jail, spend the night, tomorrow we'll deal with you, happens to Peter and John. 
And while they're there, the question becomes a question that is put very, very clearly in verse 7. And I want you to note the way that the things are framed, the way the question is framed. The leaders of the day, the religious leaders, use this word, and I think it's a fitting one, by what power? Power. This is not only a theological debate, right? It's not only a theological debate. This is a debate about power. To be able to teach and to be able to run the temple and to be the captain, you know, like the guy who's got the captain business card. Hi, I'm captain of the temple. Just uh, here to see what's going on. That guy, he's worried that these guys are going to take over and start a bit of a revolution that's going on. They have neglected and set aside their desire for truth and doctrine and intermixed a self-preservation, a desire for their own position and power and ego, which I'm sure they've spent a lot of time in their life to try to attain. The question becomes, verse 7, by what power? That's the question. By what power is this taking place? And then very, very quickly, they say it in their question, and Peter brings us back to the problem. The question becomes about the name. And let me just say it as, as boldly as I possibly can say it. In the end, the greatest controversy and question of all human history will be Jesus Christ. God has made him the center of all things. Every soul that has ever existed in the universe will be separated, judged, examined by a standard of what have you done with Jesus Christ. That is the message of the gospel. And it's the reason that very quickly Peter starts to point out and say, you know what this is about? You know what this whole brouhaha is about here, captain of the temple? It's about the name. It's about Jesus' name. He made it a very, very clear point just one chapter before in Acts chapter 3, 6 when he healed the beggar. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Nazareth, that's always hard for me. Get up and walk. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Verse 7, by what name did you do this? In verse 10, Peter says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, this has happened. By him, he says, by him, this is why I'm standing here. In verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ becomes the crux of the argument and the conversation here. And we ought to pause for a moment in the midst of it and consider that. We need to consider the fact that Jesus will become a controversial topic the moment that you enter him into the conversation because his claims are claims of exclusivity. And we must understand and realize it. Peter and John understood it. The early church understood it. The creeds have understood this from from the beginning. The name of Jesus Christ is what we stake our claim on. Nothing else. Not vague deism. Not some spiritual power who's out there and maybe is seeing all things. Jesus is the center of all things. Why? Because Jesus took on human flesh. He humbled himself, was obedient even to the point of death. And therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess 
Peter makes this controversy about Jesus because Jesus is the name that shakes the universe. That is all that will be left. When you stand before God one day, the question will be, what have you done with Jesus? His name. You're either in Him or you are outside of Him. You either swept away by your sin and cast away and condemned forever or you are brought into eternal peace and relationship with God. How? Through Jesus. It's His name. Name, 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 name. I don't know how many times I can say it. It's His name. And that becomes the question. You know, of course, that Peter and John do not back down. They end up getting let go because the leaders say, like, everyone knows this guy's walking around. We'd love to say this didn't happen and here's, here's skipping Sam over here. Right? He just keeps coming by and reminding everyone that he got healed. Everyone's excited and glorifying God. What are we going to do? So they come and they give veiled threats, which we learn later on, or threats something to the effect of, we'll put you in jail again. And eventually these men experienced martyrdom. So they're released from prison. I love verse 23. It says that they went back to their friends. Just a great phrase, a great phrase for the people that are there. We know that there's Christians that are at least about probably 20,000. I already mentioned that. And yet there's this group of friends. And what do the friends do? Friends rejoice with them. They lift up their voices. They pray. And they ask God. They say, God, you know what just happened? More of that. More of the same. More of that narrative over and over again. And Acts is going to show us this pattern again and again and again. So here's the question that we're going to ask. What does boldness do when it meets opposition? That's the first question. What does boldness do when it meets opposition? And here's a couple of things that might be of help to us, things we can glean from this, I think. Here's the first one. Boldness does not mean fighting. Boldness does not equate to, I'm going to fight you over my dead body. Did you notice how simple the narrative reads? And then the leaders came. These are not fighting men, right? It's not like the Sadducees are like, on their day job is, day job is Sadducee by night ninja warrior, right? Like, they just, but they come in and they say like, we're going to lay our hands on you now and we're going to bring you into prison. And it seems like they just went along with it. They're not fighting. They met boldness, they, their boldness met that when, it meant when opposition came, they were meek. Boldness for a Christian means that you overcome by meekness, not by getting a bigger megaphone and punching people in the face. Okay? That's, that's the Christian message. Boldness for them in that moment meant meekness. And this is quite a change. This is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Peter the last time he met opposition? Anybody? What happened? Yes, ear, ear slicing. Fruit ninja. Straight on the guy's side of his head, right? That is exactly where he went. Peter is like, uh-uh, this is not happening. Like, I'm with Jesus. And he cuts, right? And then Malchus, I think was the poor cat's name, right? And Jesus heals his, heals his ear. And so Peter is looking around and he sees, oh, so Jesus is meeting opposition with meekness. And they meet opposition in Acts chapter 4. They were bold, but boldness did not mean belligerent. I think that's key and it's, it should be clear. Christians often have a hard time discerning between belligerence and boldness. And we can get people greatly annoyed because we are greatly annoying, not because the gospel is offensive. I think we need to, have, we need to make sure and own the fact that oftentimes we have been greatly annoying and belligerent. This is not a call to belligerence. 
They're meek. One of the things that boldness does when it encounters opposition, surprisingly, is it does not fight. There's meekness. Why is there meekness? I think there's meekness because they've been instructed well. Get this, get this. I know it's going to blow your mind. Jesus, turns out, was a good teacher. (laughs) Did you know that? Jesus had instructed them well. Look at Luke chapter 21. It's a few pages back to the left. Luke is one of the four gospels of the New Testament. Luke chapter 21. Luke, the same Luke who wrote a gospel, is writing Acts. And look how Jesus had prepared, he had prepared the apostles for this exact moment. They could walk in meekness because Jesus told them, essentially, word for word, this is what's going to take place. I'm going to start reading in verse 10. And we're going to find out that Jesus is, in fact, a wise and good teacher. He said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all. Why? For my name, there's the name, my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. I believe that they were given the ability to respond not by fighting but with meekness because Jesus had instructed them well. They were not surprised that opposition had come. They understood that there is a battle being waged in the world and that when they speak truth specifically about Jesus Christ that there will be opposition. We ought to be prepared for this level of opposition. To be like Jesus did not mean that they were ushered into a candy cane lane walk of peace and fig, tr- fig leaves, right? Like, th- this is, they are getting brought further down into the furnace. And this is a kind of opportunity to witness. What did Jesus say to them? This will be your opportunity to witness. You see, only God, only God can think of miraculous, amazing evangelism strategy like this. None of us write evangelism strategy like this. But you see it all throughout the Bible, right? How else do common, uneducated, not the right license, not the right rabbi teaching, how else do those guys get to stand before the rulers and proclaim the gospel? Except for persecution. Aren't we going to see this all through Paul's life? That was like his whole strategy practically. It was like the guys would come with the handcuffs and he, he was like ready. Hey, you know what? I think the king really ought to hear this. You know what I mean? This is his strategy. We hate this kind of evangelism. Nobody wants this. We pray and we say, God, give me boldness over a latte, <laughs> right? We want macchi- we want macchiato. Ma- I can't even say these words, right? We want fancy coffee evangelism strategies, right? We want the kind of evangelism that's like, hey, you know what would be a great witness? What if we watched The Matrix and then talked about spiritual themes? It would be like, whoa, you know what I mean? And watch a movie kind of evangelism. That's the kind of bold witness that we want. And yet God engineers specifically for them. Hey, this will be your moment to witness. You know what's going to happen? They will lay their hands on you. They will persecute you. Some of you will die. But in the midst of this, the gospel will go forth and I will be 
magnified. This is a God-designed strategy for evangelism. And they were not surprised by it. So what did they do in the moment of their meekness, going with and being turned over to jail? And what do they do when they're not surprised by this opposition? They speak the truth. They speak truth. Not to be annoying, but they speak what they have seen and heard and felt in Jesus Christ. They say, verse 20, chapter 4, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This would be John's refrain for the rest of his life. You know, most people say that John is the one apostle who escaped martyrdom in the first decade or so after, after Pentecost. He lived to an old age of life and was exiled out to Patmos, right? He writes in 1 John chapter 1, a very, very similar sort of theme. He was moved to tell the truth, and he could not stay away from that truth. 1 John chapter 1, that which, we, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which is with the Father was made manifest to us. This is what John's saying. He's saying, I cannot but speak what I've seen and heard and and I'm going to testify to it. So they speak truth. And this is a difficult thing. Do you feel the weightiness of this? I know like when you hear it in Sunday school, maybe even now, here I am like in a very comfortable air-conditioned room and we're all hanging out in our Banana Republic and you know what I mean? Like we're just, we're just chilling. Nothing against Banana Republic. If that's offensive, I'm sorry. So we're just chilling out. We're just chilling out, right? And like, do you feel the weight of this? The authorities of the day coming to them, they're in prison Do not speak in this name. And Peter and John find, they they find in themselves a boldness that cannot be explained. You know, the church is littered with the history. The church itself has been built on a foundation of people who've walked in this kind of boldness. I can think of one. When I was 19 years old, I read a book called Tortured for Christ. Richard Wurmbrandt. He is the founder of a ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. I'd encourage you if you, are, if you are moved to pray for the persecuted church, if you are moved to help those who are in need, this would be an amazing ministry to get in touch with, Voice of the Martyrs. So Richard Wurmbrand was a guy who, he was born in 1909. He was a Romanian guy, and he found himself face-to-face with a very staunch, destructive form of communism. And this form of communism came into him who had been converted and he was serving as a pastor, him and his wife. And in 1948, he's faced with a decision, denounce Christ, denounce Christ or go to jail. And in the midst of vast denouncements of religion and of faith, his wife speaks up and says to him, his wife is feisty, I love her. She says, she says, Richard, you need to say something in the face of all of this shame that is being, upon, being brought upon the name of Jesus Christ. Richard said to her, at that time, if I do speak up, you will, you will no longer have a husband. To which she replied, I do not wish to have a coward for a husband. Isn't this woman something? <laughs> that is like, that is, that's feisty. That's, that's feisty, this lady is, right? And so... In commitment together, these two speak up and they are thrown into prison. And over the next eight and a half years, 
All totaled, he gets out in 1956, goes back in in 1959 for another five years. He spends huge chunks of this time in solitary confinement, only removed from solitary confinement to be beaten by guards. And his experience with other brothers and sisters who were also imprisoned for the name's sake moved him to write this work. He eventually is bonded out of jail. He escapes and goes, goes over to the United States and starts this ministry for the persecuted church. And I want you to think about and, and note the foundation of the church is built on moments just like Peter and John in this passage. This is Torture for Christ, his account of his preaching in prison. This is, uh, this is what he says. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, and so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. What an amazing account of real boldness and real refusing to, to denounce the name of Christ. And this kind of thing has been, has been the foundation and the lifeblood of the church for thousands of years. They spoke truth. Richard spoke truth even in the face of opposition. It's one of the ways that they encountered opposition and still walked in boldness. And then, of course, one of the other things that they did when opposition came is they prayed. In the same way that being a Christian in the face of opposition does not mean we become belligerent, boldness does not mean be be an annoying for the sake of being annoying psycho. That's not what it means. It also does not mean to be like some sort of like Pollyannish, stiff upper lip. Everything's fine. How was today? It was good. Eggs. Eggs and some oatmeal and a severe beating. And then we went out for a walk, right? Like you can actually encounter opposition and it does not mean to stuff it down deep inside somewhere and, and refuse that it exists. The church prays. The church asks God. He says, please, God, continue to heal. Save us. Protect us from their threats as they're breathing out threats. So the things that we find in Acts chapter 4 in response to opposition, they did not fight. They, their strength was meekness. They were not surprised. They spoke truth, even in the face of, what, of it costing them something. And then finally they prayed, and the things that they prayed were amazing we're going to see that in just a second. Let me give you reasons for boldness. Are you like me? Do you, do you read a story like this and this just seems like it's from another world? Like your, your struggle for boldness is more like mine is, where it's like, God, please, the next time I see my neighbor, give me boldness to talk to him at the mailbox. All right? There have been a few moments where I've been put in places where I needed boldness. I thought, what am I going to do here? How's this going to happen? I was on an airplane one time and I sat down next to a guy and for about 40 minutes, he just poured out his life. I don't know what happened. I am not a person who likes to talk to other people on the airplane. I'm really not. I'm, I'm, I'm the person who's like, get the window seat and have a terrible time of sleeping and that kind of person. And this guy just started to open up and he, he said like, yeah, you know, I, I grew up in this place and I was, I was staunchly Catholic growing up. And he was... He got to the point in his life where he came out as a homosexual and his parents and his family and his friends all shunned him completely 
He felt like he had no relationship there, and he'd been burdened, and he was, he was moved to tears, and, he's, and I'm sitting there in the airplane like, what in the world do I do with this guy, right? He's just telling me his story. And he gets through the end after 40 minutes, and he looks up to me, and he says two questions. So what do you do, and what do you think about homosexuals? And that is a moment where seriously, like what, what in the world do I do, right? What do I, what do I say? And so we had a great conversation, but there's, this is a small little moment where I say to myself, you know, what my temp, you, know what my, you know what I want to do in that moment? I want to completely change the subject. I want to say, I want to just say, can I pray for you in very vague terms? <laughs> can, I, can I dodge this somehow? <laughs> like, I don't want to tell you, yeah, you know that whole thing you just talked about that was so hurtful and painful to you and you ran away called religion? Yeah, that's my whole life. <laughs> that's, that's my job. That's what I do. And there's these little moments in life or I think boldness is sort of like, we, we need to say, God, give me this boldness. What, what in the world do I do? Other times, it's probably not as pointed like that. It's really more just like, uh, I, know what I, I know what I want to say right now, and I just don't know how to get there. So I want to commend boldness to you, and I want to show you that it's a pattern in Acts, and then give you some reasons to be bold. That's what I want to do. I want to give you some ammunition. Here's why I should be bold. First thing is to point out all the places that it shows up. Notice all the time that boldness shows up. In the beginning of the chapter, without the word being used, we find them, of course, being bold. They're bold before the leaders. Verse 13, they saw the, the leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and that astonished them. We find in verse 29 of this chapter as well, they pray, the church prays, to Continue to speak your word with all boldness. In verse 31, when the Holy Spirit comes, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit brings boldness to them. It allows them to speak with boldness. We could go on and on and on and on. I have a whole long list of them here. Acts 13, 46, Paul and Barnabas. It says that they go out and what are they doing? They're speaking the word with boldness. Acts 14, 3, it's the same thing. When the proclamation of the gospel happens, there's always this little qualifying word. How is, the, how is the gospel preaching done? Boldly. Boldly. Acts 18.26 and in 19.8 and chapter 28.31, over and over and over again. The word of God goes out, how? With boldness. And of course, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, please pray for me. That's a significant thing. You ask someone, what can I pray for you about? What bothers you? You know what Paul prays for? And it's amazing because his life is remarkable. We're going to find it in the book of Acts. You know what he prays for? He asks the the church of Ephesians to pray for in Ephesus. He says, pray that I might speak with boldness. So why can you be bold? Here's the first reason. Because when you proclaim the gospel, people believe. That's a reason to be bold. This is a reason to be bold because God intends to use your proclaiming of the gospel to save people. Do you know that people will actually be transferred from darkness to light? Do you know that sins will be forgiven in the preaching of the gospel? This is not meant to put a burden on you. God is the one that saves. God alone saves, but he intends to use gospel preaching to do so. You can be bold because in the miracle, even of opposition, verse 4-4, right? But many of those who heard the word believed. When you consider the fact that when people hear the gospel, They will believe and be saved. That should motivate us to want to be bold. Another reason to be bold. Because you are speaking in a powerful name. There's power in Jesus' name. 
For many of you, honestly, and I've been in that spot too, I would not commend boldness to you because you, you maybe would think to yourself, I don't have a whole lot of reasons to be bold. And I'm not saying to you today, you're, bro- you're smart enough, people like you, right? This is not a, who's that guy? Stuart Smalley, right? Don't be bold because of Stuart Smalley. It's like, oh, you're pretty enough and you're handsome enough. Be bold. People like, no, be bold because we've been given a name which is above every other name. You speak in Jesus' name and God intends to rush and meet Jesus' name with power. That's his promise. And that power comes not based on your looks, not based on your gender, not based on your station in life or your bank account. You have power in Jesus' name and so speak with boldness. Where God has committed his power, that's where I want to be bold. And he's given his power to Jesus' name. You ought to be bold as well because there's salvation in no other name. There's no other name. If we walked into a room, right, and there's 30 doors, there's 30 doors, and one of those doors leads to a path of kindness and good and health and and wealth and prosperity, right? And the other 29 doors is a lava pit full of crocodiles. I don't know how they're alive in there. They're fire... (laughs) Asbestos, asbestos crocodiles, right? You would be bold to tell people and keep them away from those doors. You would not watch people walk door after door after door to their, to their demise and saying to yourself like, oh man, I should have been more forceful. I think next time, I think next time I'll ask them to seriously consider this door. We must be bold about this door. There is no other way. And I want you to be clear about this too. We cannot be surprised. This is a double-edged sword. This is the exact thing that will bring opposition in our day. We do not walk often into temple scenarios like they did in Acts chapter 4, but we live in a society that has established religious dogma nonetheless. You know that? And you know that the chief sin in our culture of established religious dogma is this. Do not claim universal truth specifically universal spiritual truth. You can say anything you want about Jesus so long as it's you. Any crazy thing. People will high-five you all the way. Good for you, man. True for you. That's amazing. You found something that works for you. For you, for you. You say to them, there's no other way. There's no other name. And now it's like, Oh, no, you didn't, (laughs) right? It's like, this is like put gloves on and you'll watch it happen over and over and over again. We cannot be surprised, but it should give us boldness. And I mean boldness in an urgency kind of sense. There is no Jesus to offer. And this is what I want to say as clearly as we possibly can. There is no Jesus to offer the world except for the exclusive Jesus Christ. There's no other name The good news is there is a name, for there is salvation in this name. That should give us boldness. We cannot commend to people a vague spirituality. We cannot commend to people a general commitment to God and goodness. We must commend to them the only way to forgiveness of sins, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There's no other Jesus to offer. We need to be bold because God is sovereign. I love their prayer. Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. There is astounding theology in this prayer. What did Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
Could there be more infamous people? We saw earlier in Acts chapter 1, remember Judas? How did the early church frame Judas? Judas was walking according to the plan of God. Wow. Herod, Pontius Pilate, what are they doing? Only that which God has predestined to take place. We can be bold because if you are in Jesus Christ, God is working on your behalf. And all that takes place is according to his plan in his hand. What an amazing thing that should give you boldness. God is not watching you preach the gospel and saying to himself, with like chewing fingernails, like I hope no one opposes him. I, 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 right? You can walk boldly because God is a sovereign Lord, even over opposition. This is astounding. This is the kind of, this is the kind of deep waters of theology and doctrine that honestly, like sometime this week, you ought to like put on the scuba gear and just get geared up and just deep dive and hang out a while. Just walk on the coral and say, whatever your word and hand predestined to take place. Amazing. Can you say that when opposition comes? That seems like what the early church is saying. Okay, so we can proclaim because people believe when we proclaim. There's power in Jesus' name. There's salvation in no one else because God is sovereign. And then the last reason that we can be bold is because the Holy Spirit will give you words to say. The Holy Spirit ushers you along. This is why Jesus said the Comforter will come. The word for Holy Spirit, this idea, this, this, he's, a, he's a helper that comes alongside. He's a guy who walks and holds your hand. Jesus said, don't meditate ahead of time on what you're going to say. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will give you boldness. You can be bold because the Holy Spirit is empowering you for that exact purpose. We've not been given a spirit of fear and timidity. That's what the New Testament says, right? And so we can be bold. I want you to think about this fact. You can be bold because in the moment that you begin to assert the gospel, I believe that God intends to meet you by his spirit. He doesn't store it up. No one gets to have a storage closet of boldness that they can go and check is there. My friend's coming over in 10 minutes. Is my boldness in there? Is it there? Do I have enough left, right? He intends for us to walk by faith, to enter into conversations, to commit ourselves to faithfulness, to the name of Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Spirit comes and he brings grace and peace and joy and boldness. It's what you've been designed to walk in. It's one of the reasons we can be bold. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for 